Welcome to the Woodshop Life podcast, a bi-weekly podcast focused on the craft of woodworking. I'm Sean Walker of Simple Cove, and I'm joined today by Hui Huin from the Alabama Woodworker. Hey, Sean. How's it going? Don't, it's going weird. great. And Guy Dunlap of Guy's Woodshop. Hello, Sean. How are you this evening? I'm excellent. How are you guys? Oh, I'm just just peachy. <laughs> <laughs> this podcast is intended to answer questions from the woodworking community and to give you some of our perspectives on how we get things done in our own shops. If you would like to support the show, we're simply asking for a small donation to cover the cost of bringing you this podcast. We want to welcome new patrons, Kenny Johnson and VPW Designs. Please head over to patreon.com slash woodshoplife if you would like to show your support. Stay tuned to the end of the show to hear about what we've got going on in our own shops. But with that, let's get right into it. Hui, what is your first question? My first question is from Garage Dog Woodworks. He says, hello again. So I am going to be moving my shop to a new garage, and I wanted to upgrade the flooring before I move my stuff in. It currently has a basic concrete floor with quite a few cracks. I am considering either using polyurea or epoxy, but wanted to get your insight and see what you guys currently use and also what you would upgrade to if you had to do it again or if you had the chance. I currently have an epoxy floor and I did it myself. And what I've noticed is that I've actually gotten a little bit of cracking here and there and uh, a couple places where the epoxy has separated from the garage floor. Now, that might have been user error the way you know I, I applied it. Um, I do know that when I did apply it, I etched the floor with, uh, with some acid to make sure that the garage floor had a, plenty of grip to it. And I, I would suggest uh, Garage Dog, if you are going to either apply epoxy, I don't know about polyurea, but for definitely if you're going to apply epoxy, make sure you do etch with, with an acid so that you provide plenty of grip for uh, the epoxy to, to adhere to. Uh, the polyurea is an interesting one. I don't know a lot about it. What I do know is that companies who are selling polyurea are claiming that it's 20 times stronger than epoxy. This is from uh, Guardian Garage Floors. Uh, they're, they're a professional applier of, of floor coatings. That's what they're claiming. That's what they're saying. I am in the process of moving into a new space. And I will say that I'm probably going to try to look a lot more into polyurea because it sounds like it it, it, it's it's more flexible than epoxy. How much, and is, then, the, how much is the upcharge for that? So I looked at a gallon of this stuff of polyurea is about a hundred and forty dollars, mm -hmm. and a gallon of the epoxy I think is about sixty or seventy dollars. So twice the price. Is the coverage the is the coverage the same? Coverage is about the same. Yeah. Now epoxy comes in a couple of different thicknesses, and the thicker the Material the the thicker variants tend to be more durable and more moisture resistant. Uh, so I would say that for you, Garage Dog, if you're going the epoxy route, just make sure you get a relatively thick material because it'll be more durable and more moisture resistant. I think what I put on my floor was actually a little bit thin. It was the Sherwin Williams brand. I think what they sold was like Rustoleum. Um, because it, they don't actually have like their own brand of epoxy flooring floor coating. Uh, but I'm definitely going to look into the polyurea and I had not heard of it before you had mentioned it, garage dogs, garage dog. And so I actually looked into it a little bit and man, it looks pretty, pretty tempting 
It's a lot more expensive, but if it's 20 times more durable than epoxy, I might go that route because I wasn't particularly thrilled with the epoxy coating that I applied on my garage. I think you just put it on wrong. Yeah, that's very possible. What do you, what do you have on your floor? Well, no, no. I I mean, it's very possible that I did. Um, Although I don't know what I might've screwed up on. I mean, I just, you you just just spread it. Yeah. You just, you just etched the floor and you spread it around. Yeah. What, do you have any coatings on, on your floor guy? Uh, no, but I've got overspray from paint. There's a few <laughs> oil spots on it. It's a, it's a concrete garage floor. It's sloped towards the door, you know, pretty drastically one end of the yep. other. It drops probably four to five inches. It's got a lot of cracks from, you know, the, 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 the cold winters up here and there's no drain in it, which I don't like. My wife has to park her car in there half the, half the year. Yeah, and uh, so it's a garage floor. You know, I don't really concern myself too much about it. If I had a shop where I didn't have to park a car in there, mm-hmm. I guess that's the question. What would I do? Mm. And I'd put down those rubber backed subfloor panels and put plywood over the top of it mm. and just paint it because it's much easier on your feet. You drop a chisel. It's not going to ruin it. thing I always sure. drop is my, my darn marking knife. I ruined the tip of yeah. it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And and your eighth-inch chisel, I, I dropped that a couple yeah, times. Like, so <laughs> it's it, it, a grinding it, wheel. Yeah. Or another way to go oh, around wow. it is to, to lay down two-by-sixes, 16 inches on center, lay down the plywood floor, and then run your electrical and dust collection underneath it. Mm, yeah, yeah. So that those are a couple other options that are available. I've never used the epoxy. I don't know what the polyurea is, even is. It's the first time I've ever heard of it tonight. So I can't make a recommendation one way or the other. I'm just telling you what I what I have now is just a yeah. concrete floor. It's cracked. It's a garage floor. Right. I wish I wish I wish I could put plywood down. I would not yeah. put epoxy down myself. I put plywood down and you can still park cars on it. Yeah. Yeah. So Sean, how about you? What do you, uh, what do you got going on in your garage floor? Well, just a quick, a quick question. So guy, you're saying that you can't park cars on the epoxy. No, I'm, what I'm saying is, is, is for me, it's not worth it. Oh, cause it's just okay. going to get, it's just going to get all crapified if yeah. I do. Okay. The tire just, rub and everything. Yeah. Um, when I built my house, let's see, going on 10 years ago, um, the first thing that I did after I got settled in was I bought two of those, um, epoxy kits from Lowe's. I think one kit is for a single car garage. So I bought two mm-hmm. and applied the epoxy, went the etched, cleaned it, etched it, applied the epoxy. Um, it worked really well, applied the flakes and it worked, you know, flakes are the flakes. And then I applied the clear coat, uh-huh. which is a, it was a three, a three step deal. I applied the clear coat and that's where, I don't know if it was too humid out or what it was probably uh-huh. the conditions weren't exactly right, but it's just in a lot of the areas, it was just, it turned white. It looked awful. Oh. Um, and you know, I was able to get a refund 
because you know, I called the manufacturer and I told them about the conditions and they said it was right, but you know, they said it was potentially bad clear coat, but I don't know. I have a feeling that the conditions probably weren't exactly right. Um, I, I hadn't been woodworking at that point, so I had no idea what, what a top coat was. Uh, but it turned white and you know, it's, it's held up okay over the years. It's, it's, it's a little too thin and in, in my opinion, and it's rubbed off in certain areas and you can see, mm-hmm. uh, it's back to the, uh, back to the garage floor in certain areas. It definitely needs to be hit again. Uh, I would probably, if I were to, to do it again, I would pay somebody do half of the garage at a time, like Spagnolo is currently doing. So if you want to see an example, did he pay somebody or did he do it himself? No, he paid some. Well, I don't know if he, he had somebody else do yeah, it. Somebody oh, do gotcha. it yeah. Okay. yeah. I don't know if the, the kits that you buy in, in store, if they're just not enough material to, to put down a thick enough coat or if I could have put down two coats, I, I'm not sure, but mm. just the, it, it lasted probably about four years before it started to, you know, wear away. Mm-hmm. Um, and here I am almost 10 years later and I've got, I've got bad spots. I've got, you know, areas that I need to need to touch up. Now, but do you, do you, have you ever parked part, a car in there? Uh, when I first laid it down, I did. Yeah. Okay. You know, I don't think parking a car on it is really going to hurt. I, I don't, I, 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 I may have made a make it sound like I, I was thinking that before. It's not that I just, I guess what I'm saying is for me, I just don't see a point to it other than looks. Yeah. It's not going to fix anything for me. My floor is still sloped. It's still got cracks in it and right, that's not right. going to fix it. It's just yeah. going to make it look pretty. And it's actually going to make it worse for me because the first time I get overspray on the floor when I'm, you know, using a pigmented lacquer or something, my wife's, ay, 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 ay. Yeah. <laughs> it would be a little bit easier to clean up if it had a top coat on it. Yeah. I ain't clean, just raw I ain't floor. Clean, I ain't clean that crap up. <laughs> yeah, well, then, yeah, you definitely don't need epoxy <laughs> floors. You don't need epoxy No, you don't deserve it. <laughs> All right. Well, I think, Guy, you have the next one, right? Do I? All right. Yeah. Uh, let's see. No. Back to Hui. No, it's Guy. <laughs> Is it me? Yeah, it's Okay, you. I'll go yeah. anyways. This question is from Timber Tables. I don't know what his name is, but it is a cool name for a business. Anyways, hi guys, huge fan of the podcast. I just have a question regarding sheet goods. I haven't listened to every episode yet, so I apologize if this was already covered. When I Well, you need to get on that, dude. When I make <laughs> cabinet carcasses, I generally use some sort of store-bought veneer plywood. I find it difficult finding plywood that is close to flat, it's not as much of an issue when I break it down into smaller pieces, but when I make a larger cabinet, it is very difficult to get square because the plywood is rarely straight. I put a face frame on it, which is square for the cabinet door drawers, but often the carcass itself still has a bit of a visible curve in the panels. Any advice on help improving this? Timber tables. So let's just talk about plywood really quickly. When you go to like a a home center and you get plywood, it's going to be what they call a veneer core plywood. So it's usually seven to nine layers of poplar with a veneer covering on it. You've got a good side and a bad side. The good side is rated A through D, A being the best, D being the worst. The other side, the non-show side, so to speak, 
is graded one through four, one being the best, four being the worst. Most of what you'll find at like a, a big box store is C2 or D2. That is just the quality of the veneer. It has nothing to do with the quality of the plywood right. when you're buying that stuff. So let's say you have a distributor in town. Like we have a couple people in town here that, that, that sell plywood wholesale. And you find somewhere that doesn't. They are going to have the exact same plywood, more than likely, that Lowe's and Home Depot sells. It's going to be like a Columbia Pure Bond or something like that. It's just regular veneer core plywood, but it's going to be a higher grade veneer. It's going to be like A1. Mm-hmm. Yep. We've got a really good face and a really good non-show face. So if you order from them, guess what? It's still gonna have. It's still gonna be bent, and you're still gonna have sheets that are not so good. Um, yep. Where I work, we buy from distributors. We buy from all kinds of different people. It doesn't matter. You get the stuff in, and you pull one sheet up, and it just it's just, it's a potato chip. Potato chip. Yeah. And there's there's nothing you can do about it. And that's what face frames are really for. So when I first got there, we were doing everything faceless. And I was like, oh, this is insane. And we're trying to make slab doors out of plywood that are twisted to sit. Oh, yeah. And we're trying to to make them an inset into these faceless or frameless plywood boxes. And it's like, oh, my gosh, are you kidding me? And every one of them looked like crap. They're just, you know, doors are twisted and just look horrible. So what we do now, thank the Lord, is we use the the plywood, even if it's bent, and we put, you know, a face frame on it. And the door for doors, when we have to make a you know, like a plywood slab door, we use MDF core. So it's a piece of three quarter inch MDF with, you know, an A1 side on it. And we, you know, edge band it. And that's what we make the doors and drawer fronts because it's perfectly flat, not perfectly flat, but, you know, reasonably flat as compared to the, the, the plywood. So what, what you're experiencing timber tables is frustration and with the, the, the plywood like that, but it's very common. Now I know Sean, you built some cabinets once. I can't remember where you got the plywood. I remember you, screaming from their from the, the the top of the mountain how crappy this plywood was yeah it was from home depot it was terrible <laughs> it was just it, it, i think it was my cnc cabinet like you're right when you try to use solid pieces of the plywood for the doors three of the corners will match but that bottom left corner of my door sticks out about an inch past the front of the cabinet because it's twisted <laughs> there's no there's no fixing that you know you just got either get lucky with the flat piece of, uh, of plywood or use MDF core, like you're saying, or potentially just use something else that's flat at Baltic birch. Even then I've gotten Baltic birch that was twisted. So mm-hmm. it's a, it's a, it's a struggle. Yep. You know, I've even gotten MDF from the big box store, a full sheet of MDF and it come out twisted and warped and cupped. And it's a, it's a struggle to find perfectly flat plywood. Mm-hmm. Yeah, every now and then you'll get a, a, a you know, we, we, we call it, we get a shipment in where we get, you know, like 30, 40 sheets. But 
you know, we still get, there's a certain percentage of them. They can be in the middle of the pile. Mm-hmm. And you just pick it up and I'll say, yeah. And I set that one aside and pick up another one and keep going. And then if you have to use it at the end, you have to use it at the end. You have to use it. But if you go to the, uh, I, I, I'm not going to talk anymore. What about you, Hui? Oh, yeah. I've, I've definitely experienced it. Even I've experienced it even uh, getting it from the distributors and not necessarily getting it from Lowe's or Home Depot. I made a frameless pantry about four years ago. And you can see where the doors, uh, the gap between the doors and the cabinet carcass is more at the top and less at the bottom. And it's because the boards are just all warped and everything. And uh, mind you, I did not do a lot of cabinets at the time. And I should have put a face frame on it. And that would have alleviated a lot of problems. Yeah. Um, so... Yeah, that's what face frames are for. That's yeah. why we put them on. Which, which they alleviate a lot of issues. What you can also do with with, with frameless stuff, if you've got drawers in there, put mm-hmm. dividers in. That'll help yeah. stabilize the, 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 the sides of the cabinet a little bit. I only put one in mine. I should have put more. Yeah. Um, and, and it's a tall cabinet. But again, I, I didn't know. You know I, one I, of the I, things that I found frustrating with, with dealing with with using uh, material like warped plywood is when I first started, I was trying to make jigs out of that yeah, and yeah. <laughs> talk about a pain in the, in the ass. <laughs> that's you, that's you, why I use MDF when I make jigs. Yeah. Well, yeah. We'll go back 10 years and tell me that. <laughs> <laughs> I but, used MDF for jigs 10 years ago. <laughs> 10 years well, ago. You didn't, you didn't tell me 10 years ago. <laughs> Uh, um, but you're trying to make cross cut sleds where the base is warped mm-hmm. or the fence is warped, or you're trying to make a tenoning jig where the, you know, it doesn't cut your, your shoulders square, or your tenons, your cheeks square. It's, even then, like I was saying, I bought, I purchased Baltic birch that when I get it home, it's, it's warped or twisted and you just have to cut small pieces and hope that you can make what you need to make with the smaller piece. I've had less issues with Baltic birch. Now, regular birch or maple ply, I, I have had issues with. But for some reason, the Baltic birch that I get... Now, mind you, it's half inch, so it's probably not probably not warping as much. Um, but I've had fewer issues with the Baltic birch than I have with the regular birch ply or maple ply. Anyways, I hope that helps, Timber Tales. So the struggle is real, Timber Tables. Yeah. It's, it's, that, that's, that's a common problem. I was just basically trying to say that's a common problem with everybody, everyone. And, you know, I, I wish there was an answer to say, you're going to get perfectly flat plywood all the time. It's not going to happen. Yep. You got to work around it. Yep. So, All, all right. right. Well, I got the next one. This is from Adam. I thought of a good question that might help some of us beginning woodworkers. I know that everyone makes mistakes except Guy. That's what Adam wrote, not I, me. I, make <laughs> I, I always talk about the mistakes I make. <laughs> But what kind of mistakes do you see yourself making fewer and fewer as you become seasoned pros? In other words, are there certain kinds of mistakes that you should find yourself growing out of as you develop as a woodworker? Thanks and love the show, Adam. This is a good question. And, you know, I'm not going to, I'm going to list a couple of them and then I'm going to let the other guys talk because I don't want to list them all here. But just to name a couple that come to mind, the main thing 
is cutting joinery that I've grown out of, by the way, thankfully, is cutting joinery too small or too large. And what I mean by that is, let's say you're cutting a tenon, I would always cut it too small and I'd have to glue a piece back on it to fix that because I would, I would use the dado stack and try to dial it in, you know, using the dado stack. And I would always end up with a, a loose fitting tenon. And so now I get close where I can fit a corner in barely, but it's, it's something that I need to use a mallet with. And then I'll use my shoulder plane or the rabbiting block plane to finesse that and make it just, just right. Another example are dovetails. You know, it's really easy uh, to get the, the corners mixed up. This isn't necessarily due to cutting. This is talking about the, the corners and matching them up so that when you transfer your marks, you put the box back together the same way. So it's really easy to get those corners mixed up. And so now I place colored stickers on the corners, on the matching corners on all four corners, just to make sure that when I trace stuff and cut stuff, you don't put together, uh, I guess, like a, a Tetris piece. It's it's a box. The, one example is I built a drawer and uh, the last corner I cut backwards using, not backwards, but I cut it using an, an opposite corner and it wasn't a drawer box anymore. I had to start over. So that's really frustrating. Yeah. And along those same lines, when cutting dovetails, I try to split the line now uh, when I make the, when I transfer the tails to the pin board, instead of trying to cut it exactly right and, and removing the line and it being, you know, a, a sloppy fit. Um, the last item I will cover before I pass it on to the other guys is when I cut joinery for components that need to have the joinery placed in the same spot on both components. So what I mean by that is I got a cabinet now it has a sliding dovetail on each of the side the side walls. Well, they need to be in the exact same spot on both pieces. So there's two ways to handle that now is I'll clamp the boards together and route the groove at the same time through both of the boards, or I'll leave the panel wide, route the groove, and then cut the panel, rip the panel in half into the two pieces to ensure that they're both in the same spot. With those out of the way, uh, Hui, what about you? Are there any mistakes that you have grown out of that you could discuss? the beginning in the beginning i was making a lot of measuring and marking mistakes not uh for instance not using the same reference face or the same reference edge when i was going from piece to piece to mark out tenons or 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 whatever it is that i was doing now i always sort of make a note to mark the same reference edge or the same reference face uh, whereas before, because I've made those mistakes before and I, it, it, they've come back to bite me, uh, I, I, I remember it now. And so I just don't do it as often. Um, also, uh, being too reliant on the tape measure. I'm, in the beginning, that was like the only measuring tool I'd ever use. And so now that I have a couple of good double squares, a couple of good uh, six inch uh, combo square is a 12 inch combo square, you know, ones that I just always go to and I've checked and I know are reliable. Uh, those are the ones that I'm always going to. And whereas before I was just constantly just always just using my tape measure. You know, another good one is uh, rules, you know, just having good rules around and uh, reliable ones that, you know, you can depend on. Whereas, like I said earlier in my woodworking, I was just constantly using the tape measure and tape measure. Although I have a good one, it, it's not there, 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 there can be a lot of error in using a tape measure as your main measuring tool. How about you guy? Uh, what are, you've been doing this a lot longer than 
than me and, and no, Sean. But, <laughs> in a good way, in a good way. It, I, it, I mean that very probably, well. Because- probably, probably the most important thing that I've learned, and I don't know if it's really, you'd call it a mistake. It's a, it's a collection of mistakes, but it all boils down to one thing, which mm-hmm. is the procedure in which you're putting something together. Mm-hmm. It's very easy to design a piece of furniture and it does this, this, and this. But when you start building it, you start saying like, well, how am I, how, if I do this, I can't do that. Mm-hmm. Or if I put these two pieces together, I can't put that third one in there. And that just takes experience. You just have to build to, yeah. to, to get out of that. And, but it's, it's a very active thing in my mind. Whatever I, you know, even when, even it's just a simple cabinet, I think about okay, I got to do this first. I got to do this first, but oh no, I don't want to do that because it's going to affect this. Mm. And those are the things that I think help you make less mistakes. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of a fix. But think about what you're going to do, the steps that need to be done, especially during joinery and glue up of yeah. how they fit into each other so you can actually glue it up and get it assembled. Cause yeah. there are times I've built stuff and it's like, Oh yeah, I got to put this piece in there. I can't anymore. <laughs> so I'm, I'm, you know, sawing things apart to get it in there. Yeah. So I think that's probably the, the, the biggest thing I've learned. And it's the fourth, it's at the forefront of my mind every time I start a project. Yeah, one of the things that I still struggle with, and it's just me, I don't know if it's being stubborn, or if I just don't remember when I'm doing it, is milling up extra stock that's the same thickness when it comes time to cutting joinery. Like the sliding dovetails, the tenons, I just, I, I find myself looking in the scrap bin, I'm like, All right, there has to be a, a two inch cutoff from another bore that I can use. And I, it's just time and time again, I struggle and I would benefit from remembering, okay, if you're doing joinery, mill up two extra pieces that are long enough to do multiple attempts to dialing it in. Yeah. I just forget. I keep forgetting to do that. One thing I do pretty religiously, and it doesn't matter really, really how big the piece is. I say every off cut from everything I do during a project. Mm-hmm. Every, yeah, all I do this. All of them. Because you, I never, do the know, same. you never know when you're going to need it. Yep. Yeah. I do the same. And it's because I just, I'm, I don't empty the trash can for <laughs> weeks. No, I said it. I, if there, if I know I'm going to have a lot of them, I mean, if, if it's if it's like a one inch piece that I'm cutting off to square an end, no. But you know what I mean, like a, a, yeah. like a piece of you know a substantial chunk of wood, even if it's only like six inches by two inches, I'm saving that. And what I'll do is I'll have a box that I throw all that stuff into. Right. And I'll keep it in the corner. And as I cut things and say, okay, yeah, I'm going to save this. I'm going to say, yeah, I know I got to do joinery on this later. So I save that. You know what I mean? Yep. Yep. They make for good test pieces and or space can, or blocks, all yeah, that stuff. Yeah. yeah. Yep. Jigs, all that stuff. Yep. Yeah. For sure. All right. Well, Adam, I hope that helps. Uh, and now a word from this episode's sponsor. Maverick Abrasives is a family-run, American-made manufacturer of abrasives such as sanding belts and sanding discs. There are no materials used from China in their manufacturing process, and they really stand behind their quality and service. 
They have five-inch sanding disc boxes starting at $12.50, and their pricing on sanding belts is the best on the internet. Give Garrett a call or check out their website at maverickabrasives.com. All right, Hui, you've got the next one. All right, this next question is from Jeff. Hey, guys, thanks for the great podcast. I had a question about table saw blade sizes. What are the pros and cons of 10 and 12-inch table saws? Is one better than the other? And if you could do it all over again, would you choose a 12-inch saw as I know you all have 10-inch saws? Thanks for all of the good information. Uh, yeah, that's right. I, I believe we all have 10-inch table saws. I went with a 10-inch table saw because that's all that saw stop the, had available at the time. Um, but no, if I didn't go with a saw stop, if I went with a Powermatic or a Delta, uh, or a grizzly, I, I still would have maintained uh, using a 10-inch table saw. And I believe the reason is because the 12-inch table saws that I saw were much bigger. They were like panel cutting saws. They were more like, um, what do they call it? Sliding table saws. A lot, a lot of those types of saws, what I saw were 12-inch saws. What I was looking for in terms of cabinet saws, uh, at least in the more prosumer grade, I guess is what you would say was more on the 10 inch side. Um, and the 12 inch saws were much more industrial and took up a lot more space than I probably could handle in my garage. The other thing to consider is that I believe the 12 inch table saw blades are significantly more expensive than the 10 inch, 10 inch table saw blades. The pros behind using a 12 inch over a 10 inch is cut capacity. For me, that was not a pro that I needed. Uh, I, I felt like the 10-inch table saw had enough enough cut depth uh, for my needs. Guy, I, I think you guys actually have a 12-inch table saw in your uh, at your day job, right? Correct. We have a yeah. we have a very large sliding table saw it has a 10 foot throw on it. in other words we can put a, a 10 foot long board on it mm -hmm. and that's how far it slides i think it's seven and a half or 10 horsepower it's a three-phase model it's a beast yeah it's a 12 inch honestly i don't think it has a more of a cut depth than the 10, than inch. A ten really yeah i'd have to check it but you know <laughs> So a 10-inch saw is like, what, three and a sixteenth or three and an eighth or something like that? Yep, that's about right. Yep. How often are you going to cut three-inch stock or it's something thicker than that? If I'm cutting something that's three and a half inches, I'm going over to the bandsaw. Yeah. So unless you're looking for something like that, and you're absolutely right, Hui, the, the, the blades are very expensive for the 12-inch. The thing with the 10 inches, you're going to get, you know, a, a, a good cut depth. Of like I think it's three and a 16th or three and an eighth. It's, it's more than enough. But just the amount of choices you have for blades. Much more than 10 yeah, inches. Yeah. I mean, you can, if you need a blade, like now you can walk into Home Depot and get one. It's not going to be you know, a fantastic blade, but it'll get you, it'll get you up and going again. <laughs> You know right, I mean? right. You can't yep. walk into Home Depot and get a 12 inch blade. Not going to happen. Uh, so there's the availability thing, I think, is a big thing, too. Um, this is a dumb question on that. Yeah. And mean interrupt. This is a dumb question. Would the 12 inch blade that would fit on your miter saw fit in that? Like a one inch arbor, 12 inch blade? 
Yeah, it's a one inch arbor, twelve inch blade. I don't, I don't know. I don't have a, a twelve inch blade, so I've never had one. Yeah. Okay. Well, I guess to to kind of tack on, kind of what we said. You know me, I'm not going to spend more money than I have to. So I, <laughs> my saw came with a ten inch blade, so that's what I got. Um, I've never, I've never looked at a twelve inch. Didn't see the the need, and so it came with a ten. That's what I use. <laughs> Miter saw is twelve inch. Yeah. Yeah, but that's a different type of blade than you'd use on a table saw anyways. Right. Yeah. It has a, a lot complete, more teeth. Yeah, a completely different blade. A miter saw blade? Yeah. Yeah. It's raked differently. Um, it's got more teeth. Yeah. I mean, I'm not saying it's the same blade. I'm just saying and I have a 12 inch miter saw. Yeah. That's kind of yeah. part of the tail end of my joke that <laughs> no, I don't have a 12 inch table saw. Yeah. No. Well, all right. Uh, I hope that helps, Jeff. We, we stuck with 10-inch table saw. So, uh, Guy, I think you've got the next question. All right. This is from Shannon in Nashville, Tennessee. He says, hey, guys, love the show and appreciate how much you cover, unlike those other woodworking podcasts. <gasps> My question is about edge banding. Mm. Fast cap has a peel and stick edge banding, fast edge. It's obviously easier to apply than the iron-on banding, but is it as durable? Are there any downside to this versus traditional edge banding? Thanks, Shannon. Before I started working at the the, the, the place I am now, I mean, I did, I've did. i done a lot of edge banding, but not to the extent that I'm doing it now. Yeah. I have used a fast edge before, mm-hmm. and it is fast. Without a doubt, it's fast. Um, put on correctly. I mean, it just, you can fly through that stuff. The only downside to it is it is really expensive, really expensive. I can buy a 250 foot roll of, you know, walnut edge banding for 30 bucks. The fast edge, you may be able to like, you know, it's a hundred foot roll for $8,000. It's it's expensive. (laughs) It I don't is. know the prices, but I know it's it's several times more, uh, more than double the, the, the cost of regular, regular edge banding. And I put a lot of edge banding on with irons, mm-hmm. and that's how I do it in my, at home. I use an iron still to this day. And it's not, you know, I find myself, I find edge banding like a, uh, I can turn my brain off when I'm edge banding because it's easy. It's simple. It's like painting, painting a wall or something. You just like, mm-hmm. I listen to music or whatever. I just do it. It's not a big deal. Uh, at work, we have a, a machine that, that we use to do it. So it goes really fast. Um, what about you, Sean? What do you, have you, uh, you obviously have used like hardwood edge banding before. Have you, have you used a lot of iron on banding? Have you ever used this fast edge stuff? No, I've not used the uh, fast edge stuff. Um, I've used regular hardwood or regular wood. I guess it's hardwood banding. The the stuff you buy on the rolls has the glue on the back that you use in iron. And for the cabinet that I'm building now, I actually used veneer and put tight bond on it, let it dry and do the iron on that way. And that worked out surprisingly well because I didn't have curve. 
Yeah, I didn't have any any other type of uh, edge banding that would work, so that's what I ended up doing with that. Worked out great, but no, I'm not. I've looked at the fast edge before. It is expensive. It would make it faster if you have a lot to do, but then you've got the cost factor as, as well to think about. But nope, uh, I've never used it. It looks uh, appealing though, but I've never used it. Appealing. That's that's a good pun. It's PSA. I looked into the fast cap fast edge and the reason why i didn't actually buy it was because it's so stinking expensive yeah and so i think uh, a lot of the edge banding that i use it's either maple or birch and i think for a 250 foot roll it's like 15 dollars for the birch might be 18 for the maple or something like that my goodness that stuff lasts so long Uh, 250 feet is a lot of cabinet work you guys go through a lot of it guy i know that in your shop but um but it takes me a long time to go through a roll, uh, and and that's it's significantly cheaper than the fast edge, and that's the only reason why I hadn't actually took it, taken the plunge to use it. But it looks uh, so so guy. I've seen you use it in a couple of your videos. Um, it's it's a, a PSA pressure sensitive adhesive, right? Yes, and the reason I used it was because FastCap gave it to me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I should but, I should mention that. The guys right. at FastCap are awesome. I've dealt with them on a couple different things. And it's a really good company, and I don't want to disparage them in any way, shape, or form. The Fast Edge is, all I can say about the Fast Edge, it is fast to apply. That mm-hmm. glue that they put on there, it's sticky as hell. I mean, mm-hmm. once it's on, it's on. And mm-hmm. you use their, their, their pressure roller with the steel bars on it. Man, it just... It, it really adheres well to the plywood edging and it is fast. You don't have to do any ironing, man. You just peel it off, boom, roll it, trim it. You're done. Yeah. So, um, but it is expensive, but if you have, if, if you're doing an entire cabinet, let me put you this way. If you're doing an entire cabinet of kitchen and you're going to do it all with iron on edge banding because you're doing frameless cabinets. See, that's the thing. If you put a face from on a cabinet, you're really not using edge banding. Right. I think your edge banding is maybe the, the, uh, the shelves. Yeah. It's pretty much it. But if you're doing frameless cabinets, you're, you're doing everything. So you might be doing a couple hundred feet mm-hmm. of this stuff. And I, ironing on 200 feet edge banding, is going to take you some time. Oh, oh yeah. So you have to, you have to, and if you're a, if you're a pro, well, even if you're not a pro, even if you're just a guy in your shop, do you want to spend an entire day doing the edge banding or do you just want to spend a couple hours doing it? What's that extra cup? What's that half a day worth to you? I guess is what right. you have to ask yourself. And it may be worth the extra cost for the edge banding or for the fast edge. So uh, there's my two cents. What's what's your all's preferred method for truing that up? I struggle with crisp, clean edges on um, edge banding. I, I have the fast cap, whatever that little tool is called, double edge cutter or whatever. Yeah, but I still I still can't get. Sometimes I'll get okay edges, pretty good edges, but man, I struggle with that. Yeah, you'll get tear out because you have to go with the grain. Yes. And then you, you go one way with the grain, but then the, the, the grain switches direction halfway through the, through the board. Yeah. <laughs> so you're fine on one side and then you get all this tear out and crap on the other side. 
I, 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 at home, I use a quad cutter at work. I yep. use a file. Hmm. Uh, it's a laminate file. It's a special file made for trimming off edge banding. And the edge banding we use, it has no glue on it. We use a tool from Festool called the Conturo. It's a handheld edge banding system. It's a very expensive machine. And you put these glue pucks in there and you buy, it's like paper backed veneer almost. What do they call it? They don't call it paper. They call it something else. Anyways, so there's no glue on it and you put it on there and it, you know, you, you hit it once with the roller and then I take a, uh, this laminate file and I just zip, 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 zip and remove it. Hmm. So quick. would that laminate file work with uh, real wood, not solid wood? Well, well with edge banding, iron on edge banding. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, it would. But there is a lot more glue on the iron on edge banding. And what happens is, is that glue gums up the teeth of the file yeah. teeth of the file it's easy enough to clean off but you have to clean it off almost every time you use it so is that why you use the uh the fast cap quad cutter thingy yeah i mean if if here's the worst thing that can happen you have this this you have this cabinet side right and you use the quad cutter and it tears out and it leaves you know it's a problem it's it's not yeah. gonna work because it's a show it's a show face it's you're gonna see this thing so let's say that, you know, it's a 24 inch cabinet. What do I do? I go over to the table saw and I cut it. I cut it off because it's a 16th of an inch thick. I just set my table saw at 24 inches. The same thing I cut the, the, the side at and I just cut it off and I put it on again. Mm-hmm. And hopefully I won't have the same problem next time. Yeah. I've even tried, you know, I'm, I'm trying to start using like a sharp uh, plane blade out of the plane. And just running it flat, it's just a it's just a pain in the butt. Yeah, I know a lot of guys that do that, and it, it is a it's it's it takes it takes time to do. Yeah, yeah, it really does. I and said then, the fastest the fastest I can do it is with a file. I mean, I fly. I've got a couple uh, Instagram videos. People love it for some reason. What are you doing? They're just filing them, filing away the extra edge banding, and it, it's quick, and it leaves a great edge. Yeah, unfortunately, I don't use that type of edge banding. Yeah, you can use it with iron on edge banding, but you got you just have to make sure you clean the the file because yeah. that all that extra glue. And yeah. I'll tell you what, it's a skill. Yeah, it's not something that's you can just key. jump into. You have to, to learn how to hold the thing at the right angle, and yeah, 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 yeah. Is it is it called a laminate edge banding file? Yeah, it's it's a laminate file. It was. It's made for softening the edges of the three millimeter PVC edge banding you find on commercial furniture. Oh, uh, yeah. So they strip it off with a some type of you know it comes off a machine and all the machine does is cuts it off. Then you take this file and you round over the edge real quick. You run it over it a couple times and it it takes the sharpness off the edge. But that's what it's made for. Gotcha. All right. Hope that helps. Let's go to the last question. This is from Ryan. Is there anything you look at differently when you buy slabs to make into boards versus just buying actual boards? I have a sawmill somewhat close that I have actually gotten good prices on slabs. I don't use live edges and cut them off. Thanks, Ryan. 
I, I took this question because I know Guy is a, a huge slab fan, and I wanted to hear his input on this. But <laughs> <laughs> but no, uh, if I'm buying a slab, it's typically for a top of a, a furniture piece that I'm making. And the last example that I I can talk about is uh, the, the my coffee table. So I'm going to use that as my reference. You know, when I'm at the lumber dealer, I noticed that, you know, he had a slab that was about four feet tall. I don't recall the width of it, but I knew it was going to be uh, wide enough for my coffee table. So that's the first thing that I'll look for. The The next thing, the most important thing is I, like you, remove the live edges um, when I'm using a slab, unless the customer says they want it like one commission piece that I, I did a, a few years ago, but I'll remove the live edge. Uh, you know, the things that I look at are, are the shape. You know, I'm not too concerned if the slab is cupped or twisted within reason because I'm going to be using a router sled to flatten it. And I take off typically anywhere from a quarter to a half of an inch of material. The most important parts of me deciding on a slab is the grain and the color. Um, you know, I want the color to match the rest of the lumber that I'm going to be using. And I want the grain and, and the tone and all of that to just look awesome because that that's why... You know, one of the big reasons why I buy slabs is because you have this wide, big canvas of just amazing figure, cathedral, grain patterns. You just got a, a, a huge canvas that you, you're going to see a lot of different stuff throughout the entire board or slab versus buying, you know, an eight inch wide board that you're only going to see a, a narrow piece of it. So, you know, obviously I look at the grain for any figure. Uh, I want to make sure that it's not too twisted or warped. Um, and you know, I'm sitting there, I'm, I'm visualizing this when I hit it with the, the router plane, is there going, you know, what is it going to look like when I apply a varnish to this and the slab, it had all kinds of black and browns and it looked amazing when I applied the varnish to it. But th that's the most important thing is I know this is going to be the, the focal point of the, of this piece is this top. I want amazing grain. I don't want any sap. And that was really, that's really important to me. Now I have purchased slabs at a discounted rate before chop the live edge off. But the reason why I did that is because it, I have, I have a lot of options when I'm buying a big slab. If I want something that is going to look good for a box lid, I can chop it off of that. If I want something that that's straight grain for legs, I can cut it out of the port, out of the board. I, I've got a lot of options when I buy slabs that are not going to be used for something like a one piece top. It just gives me more options when I'm building furniture. Uh, but basically back to your question, when I'm buying a slab, for a project, my number one priority is the appeal of the grain. I want it to be beautiful and look awesome because that's what people are going to be looking at. Um, but that's kind of my theory behind buying slabs. Guy, I know you recently dealt with pretty awesome looking slab yourself. Do you want to talk about that process? I, unfortunately, I don't have any say in the purchasing of the slabs. They're, you know, I'm given a project and they say, you know, Here's a slab. Here's what we want you to make. I've been fortunate, I guess I could say, that over the last year, I've dealt with maybe a dozen or so slabs. It's not that I don't like working with them. I don't like the look. It's not like them giving me a, a slab job to do, and I'm just going, I'm not going to do that because I don't like working with them. That has nothing to do with it. I just don't like the look of a live edge on a piece of furniture. It doesn't, it doesn't do anything for me. That being said, we buy a lot of slabs. We buy a lot of slabs. 
and we don't buy any of them local. They all seem to come from some somewhere else in the United States. We get a lot from a, this, this place in uh, Massachusetts, believe it or not. And they're, you know, like they're three, four, five thousand dollars. They're really expensive. They come crated up, but I don't get any say in that at all. And I think the reason they use this this guy to get their slabs from is because they have pictures of all their slabs online. Right. And they can show it to our customer and say, here, here's what you're getting. Yeah, they know exactly what they know doing. exactly what they're getting. So and then when we get the slabs, the customers come in and actually I've been working and this is very bizarre for our company because uh, I'm all, all us, all us no, mere mortals are shielded from the customers. I've been brought in to talk to the customers about the slab because usually they're, you know, like 12, 13 feet long. They only want an eight foot table. So there has to be discussions about where we're going to cut, what we're going to cut off, what we're going to keep, how we're going to fill these in, where the butterflies are going, things like that. And they, they finally determined that it's easier for me to talk to them and I'm good with customers. So I've been talking to the customers a lot and I get to give a lot of input and stuff like that. But mostly when they buy these slabs, it's exactly what Sean said. They're looking at grain patterns. They're looking for exciting stuff in the grain, you know, like compression figure, uh, quilting, things like that, where it's, you know, has a shimmering effect. You're going to see a lot of that in slabs, especially maple. We buy a lot of silver maple slabs. So, um, Mm. Have you done any any work with actually? Actually, I'm doing work on a slab right now. I'm actually building a, a small reproduction of a Nakashima piece. I just started this morning. Nice, as a matter of fact. So, what have you worked with live edge slabs at all? We not at all. Um, they tend <laughs> oh. to be <laughs> again. It, it's not it's not because oh live edge slabs are bad and this and that i, I just don't have the interest yeah I, I just really don't and um maybe in the future i will uh you know uh, nakashima furniture is beautiful but i guess, I guess maybe- the, the, the question is if you had to buy if you had to buy one what what would be your the impetus for you buying it other than i've got to buy it but you look at it and you say well this is what i'm looking for in a slab uh, well, it's got to be thick enough so that I can go ahead and machine and mill it because I know it's it being a slab, like like Sean was saying, I'm, I'm probably going to have to put it on some type of sled to flatten it out. And uh, knowing that uh, I'm going to have a significant amount of material or depending on how much material I have to get take off is going to really dictate how thick the the uh, the slab will be at the end having a significant twist i mean you're going to be you're you're really limited by the by the height of that twist right so if you're if you're talking about an inch on one end that's higher than on the other end man that's a lot of material you got to remove so i imagine sean i mean are those things that you're looking for when you're buying slabs like what 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 the overall flatness of the pieces because i mean i know you're you're machining it on your router sled but yeah that's what i'm looking at and you know the piece that i had for my tabletop for the coffee table it was cracked on the end and part of that you know like the left side of the crack the the 
the part of the lumber was sticking up higher, but I knew that I was going to cut that off and it was going to actually level off for me. So that's another thing to determine. If you don't yeah. need the full length of the board, try to look at it where you're going to be cutting it. And that's going to reduce some of that twist. Yeah. The slab I'm working on right now, it took me an hour and 10 minutes, I think, to run it through our um, big belt sander, big drum sander. And yeah. it's a 50, it's a 54 inch wide capacity on this thing. Wow. I ended up taking off 12 millimeters, which is half an inch. Yeah. But all said and done, this piece got thinned down by 12 millimeters from where I started because of twists and inconsistent yeah. sawing and all that other stuff. So, All right. Hopefully that helps. So what we're going to talk about next is what we have going on in our shops. And to start us off, uh, Guy, what do you got going on in your shop? Still working on my CNC machine. Hopefully I'll get it up and going this weekend. They found out I had an effective, what they call the, the Ethernet smooth stepper. It's actually what connects the control panel to my computer. Mm. So I can't, the software can't control anything. <laughs> so <laughs> nothing happens. Um, I should get that part in tomorrow and hopefully I'll get, I'll get it in Saturday and then I'll actually be up and going. But other than that, you know, just the, I've got the Nakashima thing I talked about at work and I've got, I've got like four or five projects going on at work right now. And they're, you know, mostly cabinet projects, you know, a bookcase here and a credenza there and nothing real exciting. All out of plywood that's not flat. <laughs> so what about you, Sean? So I'm still slowly working on my uh, bow front cabinet. I uh, got the door done. I got it the veneered, got it edge banded, uh, cut the angles on the side walls. I need to put hinges in, make a bottom drawer, uh, glue it up or sand it, pre-finish it, glue it up and be done. But it's just... Uh, so one of those projects that's just taken me longer, longer than it should, but you know, that's the, supposed to enjoy the process, I guess. And, um, yeah, that's about all that I've got going on in the shop right now. Just working on the, uh, slowly working on the cabinet. I've got a few days or a couple of days off, uh, coming up in a couple of weeks. I'm going to hopefully spend more time in the shop and see if I can't knock that out. Can I ask you a question about that? Nope. Yep. Uh, <laughs> are you going to use a, a curved drawer front? Yeah, it's going to match. I'm going to use the same bending form as... Oh, so you're going to bend it, you're not going to cut it, and then just put a piece of an arrow over it. Correct. Okay, cool. I'm going to attempt that anyways, and then and then figure out how to do the joinery on that, which I think I've got an idea. Oh, okay. Cool. But yeah, that's all that I've got going on in the shop. Uh, what about you, Hui? So I finally attached the segmented apron to my round table. Uh, got that apron on. I need to edge band it next. Uh, but in the middle of uh, doing that, I got contacted by an Auburn student who is studying industrial design, and he asked me to cut out all the pieces for this parametric, I call it parametric because that's what Tim Seleski calls it in one of his articles on popular woodworking. It's basically um, a stack lamination of plywood pieces that creates a curved contoured shape. And in this case, it, it looks like a bar stool, a very modern looking, spaceshipy looking bar stool. 
So I uh, started working on that on Monday, and uh, I'm close to finished with it. I have no idea what you just said. <laughs> it's so you're cutting out pieces of plywood. Yeah, and then okay. they get stacked to create a, okay. a curved, formed chair of sorts. Okay. So it, it, it's for this guy, this kid's. He's like in his mid late twenties. He's uh, this kid's uh, industrial design class that he's taking. I think that classify or qualifies as a a guy at that point. Yeah, he's a, you know adult. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> but anyway, uh, yeah. So it's it's pretty interesting. It's not something I would normally do uh, on my own, but uh, but he asked me to do it and um, paid for the CNC time. So I'm happy to do it. It's kind of interesting. It's different from what i'm normally would do so yeah it's cool stepping out so well that's awesome i think that will do it for this show please remember this podcast is here to answer questions from the woodworking community so if you have woodworking questions that you would like answered you can send them through the podcast contact page at woodshoplifepodcast.com or you can dm us through instagram at woodshoplife We'd also like to thank everyone who left us a five-star review on iTunes. It really helps in the search rankings. And of course, we truly appreciate the support and feedback. You can reach me at simplecove.com where you can share all of your work and at simplecove on Instagram and YouTube. What about you, Hui? You can find me at alabamawoodworker.com. All the links to my social media are on my website. And Guy, where can we find you? Uh, Guyswoodshop.com. Awesome. Thanks for listening. We'll see you in a couple of weeks. See ya. All right, we'll talk to you later.